Hello CTSnet friends, in this February 2024 edition we have some shocking findings from the STS uh, Women in Cardiothoracic Surgery Very Large Survey. 42% of cardiothoracic women surgeons have had a miscarriage or complication, 70% never even took a day off work. Lots of other shocking statistics, we'll go through them in the full podcast. We've got a congenital uh, paper, uh, Rev Repair for Double Outlet Right Ventricle, Better Results, Less operations in later life a fabulous patient on early extubation after CABG why are we doing it uh, a beautiful video on heart transplantation a really great technical video on repair of a common arterial trunk and I talked to John Puskas uh, all about exciting things like coronary stentectomy the ACC guidelines and a lot more so listen to the whole podcast uh, with me Joel Dunning for tuning in. Uh, I'm Joel Dunning. We're here every week going through the important and key uh, issues in cardiothoracic surgery uh, just to help you out on your way to work or while you go for a run. So the first thing that jumped out at me uh, that we were covering was from last week's STS uh, conference. Uh, TCTMD have covered this nicely in an article and this will be coming out but this is titled CT Surgery Needs Universal Policies for Pregnancy and Family Leave a Survey. So the STS uh, did a big survey of its female surgeons. Um, it was uh, really quite impactful. Um, it did the survey between January and June last year so it's really modern uh, and it also uh, interviewed some males as well. 378 people uh, sent in responses so uh, it was actually really big um, so here are some of the findings um, more female cardiothoracic surgeons uh, are single or never married 19% versus only 5% in men um, fewer had spouses who didn't work outside the home 9% versus 21% women to, to men um, and women cardiothoracic surgeons are less likely to have children 56% um, versus 85% uh, and, uh, and women cardiothoracic surgeons on average have fewer children than their male surgeon counterparts 1.9 versus 2.5 so uh, in summary more likely to be single more likely uh, to not have uh, a working partner and less children so pretty shocking um, fewer uh, women cardiac surgeons um, have uh, natural births uh, which is 37% versus their male counterparts 63% so that's double um, and uh, and a third of women uh, needed uh, infertility support um, pregnancy loss which I think is the worst was reported by 42% of women cardiothoracic surgeons uh, which is way way above what a normal working woman would expect which is around 20% so that's double um, and 70% of those women did not take any time off work after having a miscarriage which which I firstly find the most shocking statistic uh, here 
Uh, other shocking statistics are uh, the women cardiac surgeons are, are three years older than their male counterparts when they have children. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and here's another really shocking one. Um, the women were more likely to work 60 hours a week while they were pregnant uh, compared to non-surgeon working women. So 70% of cardiothoracic surgeons or women will be working 60 hours a week versus 14% if you're not a cardiothoracic surgeon. I mean, that is just insane. Um, and um, so what we're going to do about this... Um, the SDS needs to do something about this. Um, I think we all need to decide that this is unacceptable, which it is. Um, I'm over here in Britain and this is just not happening in Britain. You know, I guarantee that if you did this survey in the UK, you would not have any of those figures. You would not have people working 60 hours a week before pregnancy. They would not be not taking any leave after miscarriage. Probably you would see some effects. You probably would have a higher proportion of female cardiothoracic surgeons choosing not to have kids or having fewer kids or having them later um, or having a non-working partner at home. So so probably some of them would sound, but it just doesn't seem nearly as bad as the situation in America. Together with the other survey they did about female cardiothoracic surgeons having only 80 pence uh, for every pound a male equivalent earns, uh, shows there really is an urgent problem in America that needs to be solved. And uh, in my chats to people at the STS. It does sound like they're going to do something about this and do it urgently. So do support them, male and female, senior and junior, management or not management. Get behind the STS. Look at your own numbers and stats and support your staff because you know this has to stop. So that was our first paper that we highlighted on CTSnet this week. The second one is a paediatric paper. It's from France. It's from the University of Paris, and it's on the long-term results of a procedure called the REV procedure, um, otherwise known as Reparation à l'étage ventriculaire. Um, and, uh, and it's an operation uh, for patients uh, who have double outlet right ventricle uh, pulmonary stenosis and transposition of the great arteries. Um, the full title is is that, Rev Procedure for Transposition of the Great Arteries and Double Outlet RV with Pulmonary Stenosis, and it's published uh, in the European Journal uh, just two months ago. So Margaret Pontelia is the first author, and Olivier Rusky uh, is the senior author. And they this is a very difficult condition, super difficult to fix. The series they describe, which is only 157 patients, over 41 years. They have a database going back to 1980. And so this is a rare procedure and it's a difficult procedure. And, uh, and, uh, and the average weight of a child is seven kilograms having surgery. The median age is 20 months. But the, the, the real thing is that these patients really need lots of reoperations and it's a really big problem. So they are supporting this procedure as a way to reduce the reoperation rate. So, six seven percent of these, uh, sorry, forty percent of these patients had a Rashkin procedure. Sixty seven had prior surgical palliation to get them old enough and big enough to have a bigger operation. Um, uh, seventy percent of them had resection of the conal septum or VSD uh, in, enlargement. 
Um, and, uh, and then the mortality in the operation is 8%, 13 patients. And, uh, and so, so it is a, a difficult procedure. Out of those patients, uh, two had had heart transplants prior to death So uh, because it wasn't successful. Um, the survival at 40 years uh, is 89%. I love seeing a paper where you can have 40-year survival. Uh, I certainly don't see that after CABG uh, or lung cancer surgery. Um, but 23% uh, required reinterventions. Um, and uh, so that's quite a low number. And that is the main thrust of this paper. If you do it the way they suggest with this REV procedure, you're going to have far fewer, only a quarter will have reoperations, and you will get that 89% 40-year survival. So if you're a paediatric surgeon, have a look at that paper, see if you're doing that procedure or if that's something that uh, suits you. The third paper we've got is something that when I was doing cardiac surgery, I was super, super interested in. I really, really wanted to do this routinely. And it was routine extubation in the operating room after isolated CABG. I think I've already said on this podcast, I visited Tristan Yan in Australia, watched him do a minimally invasive hemi-arch replacement with on-table extubation. And I was talking to the patient 20 minutes after we'd made the last incision. It is absolutely mind-blowing. And, uh, and to me, it's like, why? Why keep them asleep? You know, most of us, or a lot of us keep the patient normothermic these days. Um, standard CABG, certainly, probably an AVR. So they're normothermic. They're having a couple of hours of operations. Why do they need to be asleep for six hours? Um, I used to have these endless fights with our anaesthetists. What if they bleed? Well, if they bleed, put them to sleep again, um, which is about 3% of the time. And there are a lot of what ifs. So I was very delighted to see this paper in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery this month. Uh, Les James, Dean Smith, Aubrey Galloway, um, uh, many other great authors, really, really impressed. And what does it say? So they looked at the STS uh, data for their single centre uh, and they looked at non-emergency CABG over six years. They found between 2017-2022 nearly 1,400 patients who had CABG and 63% were extubated in the ICU, but 32% were extubated in the operating room. Uh, they then really wanted to level the playing field, so they got propensity matching going to make sure they're all nice and, and the same on their STS score, etc. 414 pairs. And what were the differences? Well, there were no differences in the instance of reintubation. So early extubation doesn't cause reintubation. Um, there were no differences in reoperation for bleeding, so coughing doesn't cause cause bleeding, uh, not stitching enough causes bleeding, um, operative time didn't change it, TIAs no difference, renal failure no difference, 30 day mortality difference. But here's the good bits, you have a shorter length of stay in your ICU, 14 hours versus 20, why wouldn't you? So if you're asleep for six hours longer, you're going to have six hours longer in ITU, aren't you? Well this has proven it. Um, shorter post-operative length of stay in hospital, three days versus five days for this hospital, uh, greatly likelihood of being discharged directly to home and a lower readmission rate, which that surprised me, but, uh, but maybe that's uh, respiratory complications because you're getting your lungs working earlier. So my question to you, why aren't you extubating your patients in the operating room? What is the reason? It's not because they might bleed. Um, so what is it? it should, is it because they're too cold? Well, warm them up before you uh, come off bypass. So what? why is it you're keeping them asleep? Um, they, they're heart function might go down. Uh, well, you know, there is no good reason. So 
I really want you to challenge uh, your institution. You know, why not have a go? Next time you've got a really young CABG or a quick AVR, just say to your anaesthetist, come on, why don't we, let's go for it. Uh, let's just try it once, see what happens. And I'm sure you'll be really, really impressed. So let's move across to the office and they'll tell you what else is on the CTSnet website today. Are you on the lookout for a new job in cardiothoracic surgery? Hundreds of open positions are waiting for you at CTSnet's Career Center. Through ctsnet.org, you can browse jobs and sign up for custom job alerts direct to your inbox. For an even more enhanced experience, create a free account and upload your resume so employers and recruiters can find you. We've got three great videos and I would not be surprised if the most popular video is going to be the orthotopic heart transplant. Everybody loves watching a transplant, especially surgeons like me that didn't really do many. Uh, we love to watch this incredible operation and, uh, and I'm sure if we did a survey, probably 10% of heart surgeons probably went into heart surgery because of seeing a heart transplant or hearing about a heart transplant or just uh, the heart transplant story. It really is probably the most evocative transplant of all isn't it the most famous one Christian Barnard etc so so we all love to watch it and this video is from India uh, Debbie Bas Das, Niljan Dutta, Pradeep Narayan and Shyamal Mighty uh, so well done it's really good so they take their uh, orthotopic transplant uh, they we join it uh, as they begin uh, doing the um, the left atrial anastomosis they start at the left upper lobe vein and do a circular continuous running suture with a 4-0 um, which uh, they do very nicely. They then drop the heart into the chest then we move round to the top of the bed and then we watch them do the IVC anastomosis. Um, they caution that this obviously is uh, possible to purse string if you do it continuous too often uh, so they give us a few tips there uh, and they use 5-0 uh, for that. Uh, next they come and do the aorta anastomosis uh, using 5-0 proline again continuous um, and they caution that you should make sure you don't have too much redundant aorta because you know we always leave too much aorta on both the donor and the recipient so make sure you don't have too much um, so this is shown really nicely they then do say if you've got a long um, time since explantation you can now uh, release the cross clamp because remember you've got a competent aortic valve you could start perfusing uh, the left heart while you do the right the final anastomosis but otherwise in this video they didn't do that they kept the cross clamp on and then they moved across to the right heart and they did the pulmonary artery anastomosis and the SVC uh, anastomosis and uh, in the SVC anastomosis they did the back uh, continuously and then they did interrupted in the front to prevent purse stringing they showed us how to float the Swan-Gantz catheter uh, safely past the anastomosis before they close it and that's your operation what a beauty what a gem i encourage you to watch it the second video is another paediatric uh, case. This one is uh, super impressive. This is actually from Magdi Yacoub's uh, unit in Egypt. I was really impressed with this. And this is titled Challenging Repair of Common Arterial Trunk Type 3. Um, so this patient had a common arterial trunk. The uh, left pulmonary artery comes off the base of the ascending aorta. The right pulmonary artery comes off about the arch of the aorta 
um, and uh, and they show us except there's a VSD as well of course there always is um, and they show us how how they proceed so it's really impressive it's from the Aswan Heart Center and, uh, and they start really by taking the uh, left pulmonary artery off the aorta and they actually take a cuff of aorta which uh, was really nice because they need to use that later because he's a very small child and they need something that's going to grow so they said let's take a piece of aorta, aorta for this and they then make a new uh, right ventricular opening um, and then they take the the right pulmonary artery the pulmonary artery off they've got some really nice pictures of how they're then basically creating a sort of Lecomte maneuver apart from by separating and putting it over the front of the aorta um, they then uh, suit the aorta back to back to the patient and then they create a basically a neo a uh, new pulmonary artery outflow tract or right ventricular outflow tract uh, by suturing the left and right pulmonary artery to the top part of the new hole but then using this bit of aorta to patch the rest because it wasn't going to reach uh, otherwise if they didn't do that. So I really enjoyed watching this. I'm not a pediatric surgeon but I just love watching all these great and innovative ways they use to fix difficult problems that they face and there's some really nice 3D reconstructions pre-operatively and post-operatively in this video so I'm sure you too would enjoy watching this video. And the third video we've got from you for, for you is an interview that I did with the wonderful John Puskas. Uh, did this at EX and he just stepped off stage from the Coronary uh, Academy. As you may know, John Puskas is probably the world's one of the world's best uh, revascularization surgeons. He really is one of our top advocates for high quality revascularization with specialist CABG surgeons. Um, we discussed briefly with him why it is that we don't we have aortic surgeons and mitral surgeons. Why don't we have revas surgeons? Well, I think every unit should, um, and the Cleveland Clinic does. Uh, Faisal uh, and John Puskas is one of them, and maybe your unit should have the revask guy pushing things forward, doing total arterial, doing minimally invasive, doing hybrid procedures and as we discussed with John Puskas, how to do a coronary stentectomy. Now this sounds like an awful thing and talking to him it does sound freaking awful but just occasionally there is a need to try and get rid of a stent that's stuck in an LAD most usually. And we discussed the differences between an endarterectomy and a stentectomy. He gives us a few hints and tips. We actually call it the next generation of endarterectomy. Uh, and again, for a revast surgeon specialist you know you should have endarterectomy in your armamentarium it's really gone out of vogue hasn't it a lot uh, doing that but but actually sometimes it's just necessary and you have to have it in the armamentarium uh, interestingly India uh, have a far higher rate of endarterectomy than we do in the in the west so we talk about that. Uh, we also talked about a few other things, including uh, massive coronary aneurysms, anomalous origin of, of coronary arteries and the ACC guidelines and, and how we might move forward with this. And we had a few little chats about what the future may hold for revascularization. And actually, we thought, you know, it's always going to be here. Uh, it uh, is a different method of protecting the heart than PCI. We protect patients from all future 
coronary uh, events as well as the present, whereas PCI just fixed the narrowing in front of you. So, so have a good look at it. Have a think about whether your unit should specifically name the REVAS specialist for the difficult and nasty cases. And if I were you, maybe don't put your hand up uh, unless you really, really love all these super difficult operations. Because I personally think that, uh, you know, really difficult case stentectomy, uh, bad atherosclerosis, multivessel, uh, REVAS, arterial REVAS, you know, that's isn't that more difficult than a mitral repair? Isn't that more difficult than a root replacement? Maybe it is. Uh, and so we should certainly hold these surgeons up as among the best specialists we have. So that's what we've got for you this week on wonderful CTSNet 2024 that we're all very much enjoying taking part in and getting new material for. Uh, we have been thinking about all sorts of exciting new uh, things we're going to do in 2024. Uh, we're excited to announce that uh, Marita Jasper is a new managing editor with us. She's a great lady. She's had experience uh, with CNN uh, and very professional production. So I'm sure she's going to kick my ass uh, with this podcast to make it even better. And I think we'll see a lot more great ideas from her going forwards. We've got lots of ideas. We've got lots of great content coming up over the next few months. So do keep listening and watching uh, here at CTSnet. And I just want to tell you a few upcoming events. Uh, we've got the uh, Heart Valve Reconstruction Masterclass from the Cleveland Clinic at uh, Disneyland, 22nd to 24th. It's coming up super, super quickly. Um, in Egypt, in a town called Aswit, uh, there is the 10th VATS workshop for thoracic surgeons, uh, February 29th, March the 1st. Um, and a little look at the programme. It's so different to a standard Western VATS programme. It's about empyema, sarcomas, giant belectomies, elastofibroma. Uh, so I think this does reflect the different demographics of what they see out in Egypt. Very different to a two centimetre pure GGO that we all talk about in the West or in Asia. So check that out if you're nearby. And uh, and if you'd like a nice cheap course uh, from the comfort of your sofa, then just for 10 euros, uh, you can log into the What the Future Holds in Cardiac Surgery, hosted by EACTS. It's on Thursday, February the 29th, 5.30pm. Uh, European time and uh, and it's sort of for medical students, pre-trainee doctors, uh, new doctors, but actually it's for anybody. It's going to tell us all about what the future holds and it's only 10 euros. So look for that uh, on the EX website and there'll be a link in the show notes below. Finally, uh, where is Diego, by the way? I haven't caught up with him much over the last few weeks because STS has been so busy, but he's flown to northern China. Uh, he's going to a brand new unit where he did some VATS and robotic surgery. Uh, he's been posting some new advanced VATS courses that he's going to be holding in Spain and Bucharest. So uh, we're going to start carrying on catching up with uh, our fabulous thoracic surgery friend. And uh, sooner or later, he's going to start doing a whole load of charity work in Africa. So watch out here for some more information uh, on that coming because he'll probably be there in June. And finally, I just would like to give an honourable mention to Shilly Ghosh. Uh, he's a consult thoracic surgeon here in the UK. We've all just met as a group of UK thoracic surgeons yesterday uh, in his unit. He set up and uh, ran the whole meeting. So thank you so much for him and everyone else in Stoke. And I think the thing that stood out for me in the whole meeting was the announcement that 32 out of the 35 units in the UK had either have or are about to have a robotic thoracic surgery program. So 
basically the whole of Britain is going to become a robotic lobectomy country. And I think that is huge. Uh, we already know that America ha does more robotics than VATS already and has done since 2019. But uh, Britain, I believe, is going to overtake America uh, in, in robotic lobectomy probably in the next two, three years. Europe's quite far behind, and we discuss very briefly the reasons for this, but, uh, but I think if we lead the way in Britain, I think Europe will follow. So I think it's super exciting times, robotics. Uh, interestingly, I also talked to Franca Melfi, uh, and she has a new Suzuki robot in Pisa. So, and, uh, and also Aman Kuna, uh, the president of, the, of our own British societies in India, trying out the Indian robot as well. He sat on the console and he personally is a Versius uh, CMR robotic user in Britain. So there's four robots in addition to the Medtronic robot, which is the fifth uh, in use today. So it's exciting times. So tune in next week and we'll go through some more exciting things for you on CTSnet in this, the CTSnet Beat podcast.